The Voice of Medicine. Gedanken, Geschichten und Talks aus der faszinierenden Welt der Medizin. Denn wir bringen sie an den Puls. Präsentiert von Radiolutions. Dear ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Voice of Medicine. Today with me, Michael. My today's guest is Dr. Sean Baker. He's a, a former chief of orthopedics for the U.S. Army. He was stationed in Afghanistan for a while. He also worked as a chief of orthopedics and trauma at two air bases. And until 2016, he worked in a private orthopedic surgical group. We will talk together today about the so-called carnivore diet that he is uh, on since, I think, almost two years. And um, we'll also talk a little bit out of his medical um, experience in the military and generally about the lifestyle and dietary issues. I'm very happy that he could make it. So the majority of, of people these days, um, you know, if they are on any kind of diets, they always try to um, convince other people to be part of their diet. You know, they are, they are very uh, good in persuading people. And everywhere where you look, especially um, in the media, social media mostly, people are running away from meat and they are running towards, well, you know, vegetarianism or even, um, even being a vegan. Um, you are the exact opposite of the spectrum, advocating a completely different type of diet, um, you know, the carnivore diet. What is exactly the carnivore diet? Yeah, well, I mean, you're right. It's exactly kind of the opposite of what, we, what you might consider a vegan or a vegetarian diet. It's basically a meat-based diet where animal protein is, you know, animal, I shouldn't say protein, animal protein and fat, you know, animal source foods make up, you know, pretty much the entire diet uh, with, with, you know, maybe some small exceptions here and there. And that's what I have done for several years now. That's what, you know, lots of people are doing now and seeing good. And, you know, more than anything, more so than a particular prescribed, you know, prescription of the diet, it's more just results based. And I think it's that's that's kind of the difference. It's, it's not very dogmatic in my view, or at least the way I promote it. It's, you know, you know, make your diet kind of a, a meat-based diet and, and then see how you do overall. But but in all practical purpose, it tends to be uh, a lot of, you know, mostly red meat for most people. Some people will, will add, you know, things like chicken, pork, uh, seafood in there, certainly some degree of uh, things like eggs and then, and then some dairy. And then that's, you know, maybe some organ meats. That's pretty much it. Uh, other than, you know, some people will, will, will still use spices and seasonings and uh, some people, you know, some people, some people will continue to eat a small amount of fruits and vegetables and things like that. But that, that, you know, in a nutshell is, is kind of the basis of the diet. So how long do you um, do this diet um, already? And, and, and do you really eat simply, well, as you said, um, only meat or perhaps here and there a dairy product? Uh, what about fish? Uh, yeah, so I've been doing the diet uh, pretty much straight for a little over two years now. Uh, yes, I mean, my diet is pretty much just pretty much like we talked about. I eat, I haven't had fruits and vegetables of really any quantity in, in over two years. Uh, I do eat seafood uh, not infrequently, although it's certainly not a major portion of my diet, but I would probably say it kind of goes in phases. I have phases where I eat a little bit more and, and you know, but, but you know, consistently probably 90 Five percent plus of the diet has been some sort of 
um, you know, steak or hamburger, basically. And that's, that's, I know it's crazy as it sounds. And believe me, if you'd asked me five years ago, I would have also thought it was crazy, but, uh, I'm, I'm open-minded enough to say, well, you know, what kind of results happen when you do that thing? And, and, and that's really what's kind of compelled me to continue doing this is just the tremendously good results that myself and, and now thousands upon thousands of other people are getting. You know what is amazing? What what struck me in the very first time that I uh, heard about you was you are a physician, and uh, the only thing, or well, not the only thing, but the, um, what I heard from physician was you have to have you know a balanced diet. You have to eat a lot of vegetables because you need vitamins and you need minerals and so on. And here, as a physician, you come and you say, well, um, you know, I eat meat now for a couple of years and I feel amazing. That is very much, uh, I mean, first of all, it's unique, but uh, how do people react or what do you tell people when they, tell, when they ask you about vitamins, for example? Well, I mean, again, this is a results-based type of thing. And so, you know, in, in actual practice, and, and I certainly realize what uh, the on-paper shortcomings of an all-meat diet have, you know, with regard to potential deficiencies in diet, but that doesn't happen in actual clinical practice. And we can we can look at, you know, historical populations where, you know, they, they ate a very, very similar diet and, and, you know, there was never really any concern with vitamin deficiencies in these populations, these people that lived in you know, the northern parts of Russia or Scandinavia or Greenland, you so know, basically Canada, places, Alaska. Places where there is absolutely no possibility of getting your hands on, on vegetables or, or fruits because simply everything is frozen most of the year. Right. I mean, that, and, that, and that honestly is how much of the human uh, existence was. I mean, we, you know, he, the, our species, Homo sapiens, is about 300,000 years old. And, and for much of that time, it was Ice Age. And so I think that was probably the default diet for many people, if, if not exclusively, at least for much of the year. Uh, you know, I mean, we were a nomadic species that wandered around. Uh, you could not reliably, you know, think you're going to get some kind of fruit or berry. I mean, those are things that are very seasonal. So we, we would have relied on that. But I mean, again, back to the question about the vitamins and deficiencies, the biggest one people would worry about is, you know, meat on paper, according to organizations like the USDA has, you know, zero vitamin C, although that's turned out to be incorrect. They've tested it in independent labs, you know, back in the 1950s. And they showed that, you know, a pound of meat had about 10 milligrams of, uh, of vitamin C. Um, but also, it also appears people that when they are no longer utilizing carbohydrates, those requirements go down significantly, and that's you know that's what we're seeing. And so when, when the RDA is the recommended I, daily allowances, can I ask you for for a second? Sure. Why? Why? Um, what's the um, what's the connection here between uh, between glucose and and uh, the vitamin C deficiency or or? Yeah, I mean, that's one part of the picture, but there are probably several. You know, vitamin C, uh, certainly we know that there are a number of uh, cellular transporters that vitamin C shares with glucose. And so when glucose levels tend to be higher, vitamin C is competitively inhibited from crossing those membranes, things like the mitochondria, things like cells in the uh, uh, lining the digestive tract, the enterocytes. They all have uh, vitamin glucose dependent vitamin C transporters. And so when vitamin, when glucose levels are higher, vitamin C is less readily absorbed, you know, across membranes. Additionally, when we look at what vitamin C does, vitamin C is an antioxidant. That's one of its roles uh, in the body. However, when we go on a low carbohydrate diet, our other antioxidants will be upregulated. Things like glutathione, which is probably our most potent antioxidant, goes up significantly on a low carbohydrate diet. So then that drives down the need for less, you know, antioxidants. We have uh, also vitamin C is crucial in collagen 
synthesis. Collagen, one of the two of the vital components of collagen that we use to make collagen are things called hydroxyproline and hydroxylysine. What happens is collagen helps to hydroxylate proline and lysine. However, we have transporters in our gut that can directly uptake those substances directly so we don't need the vitamin C to convert those. And when we're eating a large amount of collagen, we're getting that hydroxyproline and hydroxylysine, uh, and we have dedicated transporters to take those up. And so a meat-based diet gets you quite a bit of collagen. And so I think you know there are, there are a number of reasons uh, that uh, vitamin C requirements seem to go down on an all-meat diet. I mean, the, the bottom line at the end of the day, no one is getting scurvy on this diet. And the, the sort of the mythology goes back to the fact that, you know, sailors back in the, you know, 16, 1700s, you know, would get scurvy. But that's because, number one, they were eating a very high-carb diet. You know, they had a, they would have what was called hardtack, which is basically dried, dried breads and stuff like that. But also the meat they had was dried and preserved. And so the difference is if you eat fresh meat, it has still has some active vitamin C. If you eat dried, salted, preserved meat for the, for the basis of your diet, then you will get scurvy. But, but you know, as long as you get meat from the grocery store that's not you know, preserved and dried, then you're going to be fine. So basically fresh, fresh meat contains everything that we need. And as you said, the glucose and, and, and vitamin C are basically like uh, two people fighting for one cap. Okay. Um, you also mentioned that a lot of people, I think, I think you, you said thousands of people doing this diet, um, have, uh, very good results or, or positive effects. Um, so what are the short term and the long term, um, positive effects, um, of, of a carnivore diet? Well, I mean, certainly in, in the short term, you know, we can talk about, uh, what we're seeing, you know, clinically kind of every day. We see certainly people that have high blood pressure. Their blood pressure normalizes. They come off medications. We see people with uh, diabetes or pre-diabetes. What we see is their blood glucose stabilizes, their insulin sensitivity improves. Uh, we see things like inf markers of inflammation, something called C-reactive protein, which is a common blood test that can indicate how much inflammation you have. We see that Uh, plummeting down to very low levels, and that that coincides with some of the clinical findings where, where we see people with less, you know, really just inflammatory pain, joint pain, uh, musculoskeletal pain, things like that. We see a whole host of autoimmune diseases that, that appear to be clearing up, things like psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis, uh, asthma, uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Uh, arguably, some of the mental health disorders are autoimmune in nature, and so we see a lot of people that improve anxiety or depression with this. And that probably relates to uh, an improvement in gut permeability. And there's some research coming out of uh, Europe, uh, specifically in Hungary and in your part of the world. Uh, there's a researcher out of Boston named uh, Alessia Faisano, who's done some very compelling work showing that autoimmune disorders are likely um, related to, to gut permeability problems. And so the diet does seem to help with gut permeability. It certainly helps people with you know, uh, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease or also colitis that seems to be very uh, efficacious in those situations. So in the short term, we're seeing all kinds of uh, improvements in disease. Uh, we see a lot of people lose weight, improve body composition. Uh, many people report uh, greatly improved things like libido and sexual function. Uh, people will talk about, uh, you know, just improvements in mental health, energy, strength, you know, those types of things. You know, as far as the long term, you know, again, that remains to be seen. There, you know, we, we, we don't have, you know, a 20-year date on this, obviously. But, I mean, sure. to be fair, to be fair, 
there is no diet that's ever been tested over a period of, of, of a great length of time in, in, a, in a truly randomized, controlled fashion style. It's just cost prohibitive, and it's ethically pretty much impossible to do. I mean, the only way you can test whether a diet works over the long term would be to lock people up in a metabolic ward war mm-hmm. for decades and control every variable. And we can't do that. So what we do instead is we rely on mostly nutritional epidemiology, which are large population-based studies. And the problem with that is there are literally hundreds of confounding variables that we can never never really sort out. And so that is a very poor way to determine. So population-based studies are a very poor way to determine what you and I individually should eat. And so we have to go back to what is really truly working for me. And if a diet you eat, even if it's an all-meat diet, makes you leaner and stronger and improves your blood pressure and improves your glucose and and improves your inflammatory markers and makes every system in your body run better and you feel better, then then arguably that's a pretty good diet for you. And so I think we have to be more open-minded to say that this this is working for people. So what you're saying is that personally, um, the best thing that one can do for himself or for herself is uh, trial and error. Just uh, eat something for a while. Let's see how it how your body's processing it, and then if it's if it's good for you, stick to it. Did I get it correctly? Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, ultimately, I tell people that that are on this diet, and, and they ask me, you know, how long should I be on the diet? You know, should I add other things to it? And I and I ultimately just tell them, you know, do it as long as it's working well for you. And if it's not working, you know, uh, if it didn't work well for me, I wouldn't do it. I mean, I'm not out here to mm. shorten my life or make myself sick. I'm doing what really and truly works for me, and that's why. I continue to do it, and that's why I tell people, you know, and, and certainly I don't think the world needs to go on a carnivore diet. Certainly I don't think everybody needs to be strictly 100%, you know, oh my gosh, don't eat a vegetable or a piece of fruit or you're going to die. I don't believe that. I think you have to objectively assess what all foods do to you and, and not just say, oh, fruits and vegetables must be healthy because our, our grandmother told us it was, and because we have some epidemiology that suggests that. I think we have to objectively assess individually, how do I tolerate those particular types of food. And I will tell you unequivocally that there are people that when they remove vegetables from their diet, they get objectively and significantly better for those particular people. And so we have to say, okay, well, that's that's what's happening and be accept, and accept that and not to say, oh my gosh, you know, vegetables are great for all people and every person on the planet needs to eat, needs to eat 10 servings a day of them because you know, you know, you look at just a compound like oxalates. Oxalates are found in things like spinach. You know, the most common cause of kidney stones are oxalate kidney stones. And, and so some people get kidney stones from eating a lot of vegetables. Mm-hmm. And so and so we have to be, you know, we have to realize that, you know, these phytonutrients, which we, 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 we kind of treasure, also come with, you know, phytotoxins. Uh, those are part of the part of the package. And so some people, those things are more uh, uh sort of impactful, the toxin part are more impactful than the potentially beneficial part. And so we just have to be open-minded. Meat tends to be very well tolerated. I mean, human beings have been eating meat. You know, if we consider human beings as everything that came back from, you know, homo habilis, you know, we've been eating meat for three million years. And so it's a well-tolerated substance. We, absolutely. We start, Sean, what, we, you're saying, yeah. what you're saying is absolutely correct. And uh, I mean, there is, there is a lot of um, evolutionary biology to back this up. But then I will ask what happened and when did it happen that especially meat and meat products started to be demonized? And uh, I also heard, you know, there is, there is a lot of, or, or was maybe a few years ago, a lot of rumors about how meat products, I don't know, sausages, etc., cetera, um, cause colon cancer and so on. So, um, my question will be, do you, do you know where this came from? Why suddenly meat is basically, you know, the, the, the incarnation of devil? 
well, I mean, certainly we can look back to the roots of the, the creation of the American Dietetic Association back in 1917. And so that was that organization was founded by uh, some religious activists, uh, one of them in particular in the name of Lena Cooper, who was a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, and the Seventh-day Adventist Church uh is, is it strongly promotes vegetarianism. They felt that meat was not only contributing to disease, but it was also the cause of, you know, carnal thoughts and lust and, and, and all these things that were sinful. Uh, this goes back to guys like uh, John Harvey Kellogg uh, back in the early 1900s, late 1800s, where he was establishing sanitariums, where he was actually doing genital mutilation on people to prevent them from masturbating or having sexual or impure thoughts and feeding them bland cereal-based diets and eliminating uh, things like red meat from the diet. And so we've had that, you know, since the founding of our dietetics association. So we've always had a bias ever since really, you know, modern nutritional science has started to sort of be against red meat. And, and so, you know, all of the, you know, the epidemiology and most of the, you know, even, even, you know, going back to this 2015 proclamation that, uh, placed by the uh, World Health Organization via the IARC over in Lyon, France. You know, one third of that that panel that made that decision was composed of you know ethical vegans and vegetarians, and they didn't declare that conflict of interest. And people that were on that panel, and by the way, it was not a unanimous decision. There were many detractors uh, that were against that that decision that they released publicly. And one of the major uh, 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 complaints was they dismissed large bodies of evidence that did not support their claim. You know, they refused to disclose the fact that many of them had ethical biases towards veganism and vegetarianism. Uh, you know, they, they relied heavily on extremely, extremely weak epidemiology to make those claims. And so it's been very, very much uh, by many people in the scientific world is very critical of that finding. In fact, in 2018, you know, if we want to talk about epidemiology, uh, there was a study that came out of Asia looking at the epidemiology for Asia. Now, remember, Asia, the population of Asia is the majority of Earth. I mean, 4.5 billion people live in Asia. And when you look at red meat, when you look at processed meat, when you look at red meat, whether it's cooked or raw, it doesn't matter the cooking preparation method, there is zero, no correlation whatsoever between red meat or processed meat and colorectal cancer. And this is the largest population cohort in the world. That, that, that data is just completely ignored. So when you couple red meat, and we don't eat much red meat in the Western diet. I mean, you know, the average American, which eats a lot of red meat, only eats about 2.5 ounces per day. The rest of our diet comes from processed grains, sugar, uh, uh, industrial oils. And so we're blaming red meat for the things that these other things are likely doing. But when age, so Asians don't have colon cancer when they eat, when they eat red meat in, in, uh, in Asia. But when they move to the United States, guess what? Their colorectal cancers, you know, jump right back up. That's because the way Americans eat red meat and, and arguably Europeans, uh, to a large degree now, uh, eat the red meat with, uh, you know, in the form of a hamburger bun mm -hmm. with uh, a bunch of French fries that are cooked in, you know, some kind of seed oil and then chase it down with a Coca-Cola. And so that is what we're seeing played out, but we're, 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 we're sort of putting the blame on red meat because, some of these religious and ethical beliefs, we don't like red meat. We think it's, you know, evil. Many of the religious people think that. And then there's also this belief that it's destroying the environment. Well, yeah, sure. And I also I also think that there is a, you know, strong um, 
well, one could argue if it's wrong or, or right, but there is a strong uh, moral voice of, you know, not killing and eating animals as well, especially uh, among the uh, vegetarians and vegans. So that's for sure as well. Speaking of which, um, because I've heard a lot of times vegans claiming, um, well, we don't need to eat meat because everything that we need, um, we, uh, what our body needs can be plant-based. Is that actually true? Or does meat um, really has something that you cannot get from anywhere you know, plant-based only? Uh, certainly there are compounds in meat that, that do not appear in plants and they can't, you know, things like taurine, things like carnosine, things like carnitine, you know, the, you know, you know, potentially you might be able to, to add supplements to that. Uh, but we're seeing that some people, a small percentage of the population seems to do okay for a period of time on a, you know, a plant dominant diet, assuming they supplement correctly. Uh, we are seeing just tremendous numbers of people that attempt a plant-based diet, you know, particularly a vegan diet, and they and they just can't do it. They they fail for uh, health reasons, you know, and, and a whole a whole number of reasons. But you know, there was a study kind of done a few years ago that showed that about 84% of people that attempt a vegan or vegetarian diet end up quitting within a few months, and citing health reasons as a main main reason. There are, I think, something like three times or four times as many ex-vegans. Uh, in the population than there are actual ones. You know, the numbers still remain, mm -hmm. you know, relatively low, maybe 2% of the population, 3% of the population, depending on what part of the world is. Now, it's getting a lot of press, and they're publicizing a lot lately, but still it remains a very low minority, which is a very vocal minority. And they're trying to drive policy decisions uh, throughout the world based on their their ethical beliefs, and, and a lot of that is misguided. It's distorting the data. Uh, they're very good at uh, making an emotionally, uh, uh, you know, emotional arguments that pulls at people's heartstrings and, and really manipulating and twisting the data to, to try to uh, get people to, to, to buy off on their, on their, uh, uh, you know, on their dogma really. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it really, I mean, you know, when we talk about animal suffering, uh, certainly, you know, and I, and I, and I don't want to say that there, are, there are no problems at all with, with the way we raise agriculture. I, I do think we have to understand there are huge differences you know, regionally, there are huge differences with regard to certain animals. I think chickens in particular in, in the U.S. style probably have it worse. You know, pigs probably, you know, a little less so. And then and then cattle probably have it the best among these animals we eat the most. I mean, I've spent a lot of time on cattle ranches and mm -hmm. talked to these people. And I know what really goes on versus what we're told goes on. You know, what we what they do is they'll often show a picture of you know, some sort of slaughter that occurs in a third world country where they don't have any regulations and they, you know, they try to pretend that's what happens throughout the world. I can speak pretty, you know, reasonably intelligently about how it's done in the United States. Uh, but I totally get you. We, we also, like, yeah. I, the farmers I know, they do treat their animals with a lot of respect. Um, so that's for sure that, you know, these, these distorted pictures, and I saw some videos as well on YouTube and, and maybe in some, some uh, you know, TV shows, I, I would say that they are not representative of what a usual um, typical farmer actually does with his animals. Right. I mean, we can, we can all find abhorrent practices in any, you know, in any field we want to look at. I mean, there's plenty of things that humans do that are bad, and we could say all humans are awful beings and we need to get rid of humans, or, you know, we could we could say all all bankers are corrupt and, you know, you know, I mean, we, the, the, the list goes on and on. So it's just, mm. it's just, it's just propaganda where you find the worst examples and try to conflate that to the standard of care, standard of practice throughout the world. And that's clearly not, not what happens, but back to the, you know, the, the, you know, certainly, uh, even if you eat a, you know, a vegan diet 
many, many, many animals are still going to die just by existing and, and consuming any goods at all on the planet. Uh, many, many animals, many, many ecosystems, you know, to have your computer, to have your clothing, to have your shoes, to have your car, that comes with a cost of, you know, animal life. That's just a part of human existence. You know, should we try to do what we can to improve that? Sure. You know, do we need to stop eating and, and, and take up a, a nutritionally deficient diet for many people? I don't think is a correct answer. I think the better answer is to continue working on improving agricultural sustainability, efficiency, and, and considering ethical considerations. And that, and that largely is being done, particularly in places like, you know, Europe, the U.S., you know, uh, other, other Western countries where they really do work to, to improve the welfare of the animals. They really do work to improve uh, the sustainability. I mean, you know, if we look at the United States, for example, I mean, we have, you know, we're producing the same amount of beef, basically, that we did 50 years ago, but we have 30 percent less cattle. So we're doing it with less animals. Uh, so there's less animals that are that are doing it, less animals causing any kind of greenhouse gases. Um, we use less water than we did in 1970. We use less land. We use less feed. So you know there are, there are significant strides being made. There are there are potential. Uh, you know if we want to talk about methane as as a as an etiologic problem for greenhouse gases. And that's highly debatable about what methane does. We know it's a more bio, you know, more bioactive compound as a greenhouse gas. But it's in equilibrium. It's it's its production tends to go back with what's being withdrawn. Uh, it only hangs around in the atmosphere for about ten years, as opposed to CO two, which hangs around for thousands of years. Um, you know, the methane issue. It may even go. You know, there there are compounds that you can feed cattle where it can com- almost completely. Uh, rid them of methane. You know, there's a there's a uh, you know an algal project, mm-hmm. you know, product in in Australia they're developing that you feed it to the cattle, and 99% of their methane emissions goes away. And so there are things we can do to continue to make animal-based agriculture. And animals are important for the environment. They are very important for our soil. You know, when we don't have animals in the soil. You know, the, the topsoil goes away and, and, and it dries up, and we turn everything into a desert. And so that is one of the problems with trying to you know, limit how many animals we have on the planet. Yeah. So bottom line is um, trying to be more efficient with the resources instead of just abandoning them uh, because of misguided um, ideology. Um, Sean, how did you actually get to the carnivore diet? What 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 was what started your path to basically just start eating meat? I don't I don't suppose that you woke up one morning and said, well, from now on it's steak only. Yeah, I mean, it was a gradual transition. I mean, I'm 52 years old right now, and, and quite honestly, the best health of my life, the best of, you know, most, str- you know, strongest, athletic, fastest, everything I've well, ever been. I, I, I watched get- some of your videos on YouTube. Uh, you do look very, very fit, if I may say so. And uh, for everybody who is listening right now um, or later on, um, you should check out definitely uh, Sean's webpage and also his videos on YouTube. It's uh, It's stunning. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm doing well with it, but but I mean, you know, I, you know, when I was probably in my early 40s, you know, I'd been an athlete my whole life, but I, I just you know started to get you know signs of aging, metabolic disease, all those things. I was you know carrying too much body fat, even though I was exercising extremely hard and still competing at a world class level. I, I just you know decided to start adjusting my diet. I had believed up until then I could eat kind of whatever I wanted as long as I trained hard enough, and it, it worked. It worked for about 40 years, and then it stopped working, but. So I, you know, I went through a, a, you know, a whole bunch of different diets, trying to figure out what worked best for me, and and you know, and, and initially, to be fair, I went on a very plant-heavy, low, 
you know, fat, you know, lean meat diet and it worked Mm -hmm. to to allow me to lose weight. Um, but I was hungry all the time. Uh, I was not particularly in a good mood. Um, I was doing tremendous amounts of exercise to, uh, to maintain that weight loss and it just wasn't sustainable for me. And so then I went over to a more kind of a paleolithic style diet and then kind of more of a low carbohydrate style diet. Then I did a couple of years of a ketogenic style diet. And then, you know, as I continued reading and studying and wanting to improve my performance, you know, both from an athletic standpoint and from a health standpoint, I came across a bunch of people doing this carnivorous diet. And so I thought, what the heck, I'll do it for 30 days. And I, you know, and I did it and I just really felt good. At the end of the 30 days, I said, well, that was a fun experiment. I went back to my usual diet at the time and, and, you know, with included, which included, you know, fruits and vegetables. And I just didn't feel as good. And I, and I just kind of objectively said, you know, all things being considered, I would rather feel good every day. And so I went back to the, you know, the kind of the meat only diet and I've been that way for now more than two years. And so, uh, that's kind of my story in a bit of a, you know, synopsis. I also checked out your webpage and, um, it says that you're coaching people as, as far as I understood. Um, so for anybody who would be interested to get a coaching with you, can you, can you uh, walk us through it? What do you actually coach people in? What do you help them with? Yeah, so I mean, I, you know, again, I've got a, a background. I'm, I'm an orthopedic surgeon you know, by training, so I have a medical background. Um, I have been a lifelong, high-level, you know, world-class athlete, so I'm pretty good at knowing how to you know, do training stuff. And then, of course, I'm, I'm pretty knowledgeable with regard to, to diet, particularly as it comes to a meat-based diet. So I, I help people with... Uh, how to implement diet, some of the problems or transition issues that they may have. I talk mm-hmm. to them about the lifestyle stuff in general. Some people want me to help them with their training. Some people have, uh, you know, I, I can't give you know true medical care advice, but I but I, I can certainly comment in general terms on some of the medical stuff, some of the labs that people sometimes bring me. I can talk to them about how to interpret that a little bit. Uh, but, but that's kind of what it involves. You know, it's, it's, you know, typically I spend an hour with people, uh, initially, and then some people want to, you know, continue and, and, and do that. And that's been very, you know, rewarding, you know, for me particularly, cause I like to get to spend that much time with people and, and really kind of hopefully make a bigger impact than what I could as a physician where I would often get, you know, five or 10 minutes with a patient and that wasn't really enough time to do much. Uh, so that, that is something, you know, that's one of, one of the websites I have, uh, we've got uh, meatheals.com, which is a compilation of, you know, now hundreds of people that have shared their, uh, you know, life-changing, uh, you know, journeys going from a standard diet. Many of them, many of them come from a plant-based diet to a, you know, a carnivorous or a meat-based diet, and, mm-hmm. and just seeing the tremendous health improvements they have. And we get, you know, people submitting their stories every single day. You know, we put, in, put a new story up just about every day where somebody has, you know, gotten rid of their rheumatoid arthritis or their psoriasis or lost 100 pounds or gotten rid of their suicidal depression or their anxiety or, you know, the list just goes on and on. And so it's just wonderful to catalog all that stuff and have it as a resource for people that want to, you know, because people relate to stories. You know, there's it's nice to have studies and stuff like that, but really – Stories are very compelling and very powerful, and I know people will say it was only an anecdote, but you know when you start getting hundreds and hundreds of these anecdotes, you know it gets people's attention, it, and it gives people the courage just to try it. And, and that's all I say, you know, try something. It doesn't have to be a carnivore diet. Mm-hmm. But if you, if, mm-hmm. And I tell people, you know, if, if you're in a situation where you need to make a big change, you know, you really need to make a big change. You know, you can't just do a little bit of this and a little of that in moderation and balance. It just doesn't work very well. So for some people, doing something which is by many people would seem extreme or radical, 
is what it takes to, to get the job done. And, you know, I can tell you that there's really no downside to, to trying it for a month or two. I mean, what, what happens? You eat a bunch of delicious steaks for a couple months. I mean, you know, you know, you know, what's going to happen to you? I mean, what's you know, the worst that can happen? Yeah. In, yeah, in that yeah sense. I mean, mm-hmm. Right. You know, no one's dropping dead, you know, two months of eating steak. It's just not happening. I mean, people are happy to eat 10, you know, 10, 20 years of donuts and, you know, cupcakes and potato chips and, and think, you know, nothing of it, but my goodness, you eat, you eat a bunch of, you know, nourishing, you know, arguably the most nourishing food on the planet, meat. And, and all of a sudden people are like, oh my gosh, it's the worst thing in the world. Uh, you know, obviously, obviously I think that's a bit crazy and, and very, very uh, hypocritical to, to say, well, you, you know, we're fine if you eat, you know, junk food all day, but my God, don't try that meat thing. That's crazy. I get that. No, absolutely. And you're right. Um, I mean, only cognitively, um, we are structured in a way that we um, prefer stories much more than data. You know, when you when you when you pull up some numbers or, or show people, I don't know, regressions and, and whatnot, uh, they will nod and they will say, OK, interesting. But it doesn't really, uh, you know, touch them also emotionally on a personal level. So stories definitely work. And speaking of stories, you also have a podcast, which I also recommend to 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 listen to. Now, from the guests that you had so far, I think you have over 60, 60 uh, um, interviews that you made. Um, which one was for you, probably maybe it's hard for you to put a finger on it, but which one really kind of blew your mind where you said, wow, okay, this was a great talk or I learned something which I didn't know before at all. Um, this kind of changes everything for me. Was there such a talk actually? You know, we've had, we've had just tremendous guests on. I'm really, I really, each and every one of them is just tremendous. I mean, we had some very inspiring, just, just, you know, regular people that have changed their life, which I think is great. You know, I think for me, because, you know, I've been in the health field my whole life. So much of the knowledge I get on there is just kind of, you know, interesting stuff, confirming stuff that I know or learning a few new things. But when I kind of get off outside of my specialty, like we had a, an anthropologist on by the name of Mickey Bendor from Tel Aviv, just tremendously fascinating stuff about human evolution that, you know, that, that really kind of lines up with what humans actually were faced with and how they adapted and what their solutions were and how, you know, animal source nutrition was largely a solution for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that sort of stuff has been, uh, you know, truly fascinating. We had guys like uh, Frank Mitloner, who's a professor out at uh, UC Davis, who's one of the leading experts in the world when it comes to uh, animal agriculture and greenhouse gases. And this is stuff that, you know, I'm not an expert in, but when we have these experts on there telling us that this is what's the this is a real story. This is not the propaganda you're hearing, you know, and, and same thing with Dr. Sarah Place. And these folks, you know, if you want to get the information with regard to, you know, things out just outside, just the health stuff, that stuff is very fascinating to me. I mean, you know, after this podcast, I'm going to have a rancher on today. I'm really excited to talk mm-hmm. to this rancher talking about how he is, you know, how he's doing it in the world. Uh, Professor Ben Bickman was, we, we had him on twice. We just recorded, re-recorded his stuff. He's just got some fascinating information around metabolism and how, you know, what we eat impacts metabolism and, and how, you know, again, it, it kind of ties into what, you know, I'm suggesting and what a lot of people are seeing. And so those, those ones are, uh, you know, very interesting. You know, Mark Sisson was on the other day for many people know him as the sort of the leader of the sort of this primal movement. He's been around for, you know, a decade or more really beating the drum on this mm-hmm. and, and just being a very, uh, influential health guy and he was you know interestingly he was you know coming around and being fairly accepting to people you know doing this carnivore diet and so supporting that and that's that's you know for me seeing the uh 
you know, the acceptance in the low carb community, you know, of people uh, trying this diet and seeing it as not as something that's crazy, but as something that, you know, gets results for, you know, a certain subset of the population and why the heck not? Why, why not? Why not just, you know, go with what results are and, and just allow people to have good results and not judge them on, you know, what they think are ethically right or, uh, you know, based on religious beliefs and things like that. I think it comes down um, to two things. First of all, um, talking to to people with interesting stories, also based on their you know uh, vast knowledge and expertise in their fields. So kind of let them be heard again. And then the second thing is uh, be less prejudiced, perhaps for let's say non um, regular paths. You know, be it in nutrition or perhaps in lifestyle in general, training, etc. I think this is something where we where we have to do a little bit more um, as as a f- f- yeah human family. Let's call it that way. Um, another thing, I, Sean, I wanted to talk to you about is, uh, and I was very interested in is, so you worked also for the U.S. military as a chief of orthopedics, and then later on a chief of trauma, um, and then you changed to a private sector. And now maybe this this question is, you know, sort of uh, stupid coming from a non-physician, but um, what I, what is the difference between working as a army doctor and then, you know, in the private sector? What would you say? What is the main difference, and and what did you like more about one of these fields, or maybe perhaps both of them? Well, I mean, you know, you know, two things. You know, in the military, you know, the day to day practice is you know mostly young people because most of the military is young active guys. You don't have a lot of old, older patients, and so you have a bit of a different patient population. And but then you know when you get deployed, you know, and then it's a huge trauma issue. You know, you got these people that are being you know literally blown to pieces. And you're You've been to Afghanistan, right? Right. Yeah. I spent quite a bit of time in Afghanistan doing a bunch of really, you know, really intense trauma surgery where people were, you know, literally, you know, legs and arms and legs blown off and, you know, just really, really difficult stuff and challenging trauma. Uh, That is not what you see normally in day to day practice. And then when you go into private practice, you know, with, with the military, it's it's, you know, mostly just taking care of patients and, you know, doing the best job you can. Uh, with private practice, or even as I was an employed physician, there's a much greater emphasis on productivity, being efficient, uh, generating income, making money mm-hmm. uh, for for both yourself, but 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 also importantly for the hospital. And so that there are some different pressures that come there. There are a lot more uh, administrative. Uh, and regulatory hurdles to jump across, which many physicians just quite honestly just don't like it. It's just, it's just, it, it leads to a lot of burnout and, you know, just, you know, just frustration for, for physicians. And so those are, those are the major two differences. I mean, you know, I, I do enjoy, I, I, I took care of a lot of older folks and I enjoyed treating the, you know, the older folks and, you know, uh, you know, helping them feel better with maybe, maybe give them a new knee or a new shoulder or, you know, for, for unfortunately for, for the ones that fall down and break a bone or break their hip, fixing that so they can start walking again. But, uh, you know, there, there, there's different pros and cons to both of those things. But, uh, uh, you know, I certainly enjoyed my time doing that stuff. Mm. Do you still practice medicine, actually? You know, I, this is a, for, for you don't know that I, this, because of what I'm doing from a diet standpoint, and a lifestyle standpoint, this got me in uh, a, a large disagreement with, with my employer. And so we, we, we ended up having a long legal battle about, you know, me wanting to, uh, not operate as much and do more lifestyle stuff, uh, ultimately being the, the, the precipitating event that causes. And so I, I basically stopped operating, stopped practicing for about 
two, three years. Mm-hmm. And we'll, I'm, I'm debating going back into practice possibly later this year, at least maybe in a part-time capacity, if I can find a situation that allows me to uh, incorporate a significant lifestyle component you know, into what I want to do. Because I think ultimately, as physicians, we need to start doing that. We need to stop putting so many Band-Aids on people. We need to, we need to start being extremely aggressive about preventing disease and, 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 and quite honestly, curing disease and, and not so much just, you know, mitigating symptoms and, and applying this, you know, wonderful technology we have, very expensive stuff. But ultimately, you know, I consider them high-priced Band-Aids, and I, and I think we can do better. Thank you very much, Sean. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. I've learned a lot, and I'm pretty sure that our listeners will as well. And for everyone out there, um, thank you for tuning in. This was The Voice of Medicine with me, Michael, and Dr. Sean Baker. Sean, thank you again. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. The Voice of Medicine. Gedanken, Geschichten und Talks aus der faszinierenden Welt der Medizin. Denn wir bringen sie an den Puls. Präsentiert von Radiolutions. Thank you.